Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I talk with Jack Kennedy, the founder of Health Access Sumbawa. He went to Indonesia and all of a sudden got malaria. And he thought, why do we still have malaria in this day and age? What can we do to stop it? So we talk all about malaria, how you get it, how you avoid it. What's your biggest bang for your buck as far as preventing it? Is it bed nets? Is it spraying? Is there a malaria vaccine on the horizon? What kind of tips does he have for someone who's thinking about starting a nonprofit? This is a fascinating interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Next week, I will be having the mayor of Burlingame, California, so you won't want to miss that. Lastly, do go to tourradar.com slash wanderlearn to have a chance to enter an amazing contest and win some travel-related prizes. Check it out tourradar.com slash wanderlearn. Now, enjoy the episode. What year did you go to Sumbawa and what happened there when you went there? I've been going to Indonesia for 30 years, but in 2014, um, I was actually on holiday on the island of Bali, which is kind of in the central part of the of the group of islands, and a friend of mine invited me to travel with him to Sumbawa, um, which is an island quite large, about 10% bigger than the state of Connecticut, about 1.4 million people. Um, it's part of a, a, of a province called Nusa Tenggara Barat, and, uh, which includes several different islands. And uh, it, that area is very poor, has very limited resources. To give you some sense of the difference between Bali and Sumbawa, in Bali there's, uh, I think, over six million uh, tourists from overseas that come every year to Bali. In Sumbawa, there might be 600, so that <laughs> and the island is twice as big. But w- hold on, why did your friend want to go to Sumbawa, and why did you want to follow him there? Well, I had never been, and I had heard that it was gorgeous, um, all of those islands. I didn't know much about Sumbawa itself, but I had heard about Flores and Sumba, which has a very exotic culture of uh, men fighting on horseback with spears, and people die every year. And so it's this sort of wild, wild east of Indonesia that has always intrigued me, but never really had an opportunity to go. My friend Zionel, who's actually from Sulawesi, another island in Indonesia, um, is in the real estate business. And what he does uh, is finds remote beaches in places nobody's ever heard of and buys them up and 10 years later tries to sell them to a, a French or German guy. So that, so that was his motivation to go. Mine was just purely, wow, this would be uh, something fun to do and I'm just hanging out here in Bali. And, and your souvenir from Sumbawa was um, a malaria parasite in your body. Yes, uh, as it turns out. So, so we, we went to Sumbawa, we flew in there, we rented a speedboat, we checked out some various beaches, and uh, the, the best one by far, this beautiful uh, one kilometer long, pure white sand beach with no houses on the beach at all. Um, and I said to Zainal, let's go explore this. This is like unbelievable. I think I saw it on Google Earth. So we got off the boat. We told him to come back in a few days. We wandered into the village. Uh, We found this village of about 500 people uh, with uh, 
uh, post and beam style homes with just plank walls, big spaces between the, the boards, and, and uh, very poor village, mostly hunter-gatherers, but uh, people also did a little bit of rice farming. Uh, corn farming was just starting, did a little fishing just close to the shore. <clears throat> uh, so we stayed a few days. I said, uh, I'm not sleeping in here tonight. I'm going to the beach. And I had a little tent with me. So they said, oh, no, no, you don't want to do that. There's, there's wild boar. There's uh, buffaloes that aren't uh, fenced. Uh, it's too dangerous. You don't want to sleep on the beach. I said, no, no, I'm sleeping on the beach. So they had a little conference and said, OK, we sleep on the beach. So the whole party moved to the beach for the second night. And we built a bonfire on the beach with driftwood. And uh, they went uh, and got some prawns uh, and cooked them on the fire. But the mosquitoes were horrendous. And um, they, everybody had to check out the tent. They were zipping and unzipping the tent. And it was full of mosquitoes. So uh, after that adventure, we left the next day. I headed back home to Maine, went back to work. And hold on. So nobody, when they were talking about the wild boars and all this other stuff, nobody stopped and said, hey, there's also a lot of mosquitoes and that's irritating out there? I mean, the wind... Is- no. Nobody talked about Nobody talked about the uh, risk of uh, malaria or mosquitoes or anything like that. It's funny because uh, most people don't know that the animal that has killed more humans than any other animal on the planet is... The mosquito. Yeah, exactly. The lowly mosquito. So, so everybody's worried about these boars and other wild animals and maybe snakes, but it's really the mosquito is the deadliest thing out there for us humans. Larry, the, so different mosquitoes, you know, different diseases. Dengue fever is also a mosquito, right? Uh, but for uh, malaria, it's the Anopheles mosquito, and it, it's, a, it's a night biter. So uh, it comes out uh, at... Uh, when it starts to get dark and it tends to feed at night and uh, the females uh, need blood to feed their eggs basically so the the male now typically typically it takes about a week or two to get the symptoms of malaria that's what it is and that's why i had no symptoms so i got home because i went directly home thank god for me really because if i had come down with malaria in that village it would have been uh, life-threatening for sure but i went to work hold on but wait wait i, I want to challenge you on that mm. because I got malaria six times in Africa in different places. And to me, I thought it was actually wonderful to get malaria in Africa because Africans are so familiar with the, you know, with malaria and they've got all the medication to take care of and they're just prepared. They deal with it all the time. It's a, it's a daily occurrence. And so Whereas in America, you could have all the symptoms of malaria, but then unless a doctor asks you, where have you been? Have you been in a malaria zone? A lot of doctors might not even think that that is what you have. And so in some ways, being in America with malaria, since the doctors, it's not on their radar, they it actually might be more deadly than it could be if you're in those uh, remote villages that are used to having malaria every day. Yeah. Well, that, I certainly started with that premise, but um, two things. One... Uh, there what there in this particular area because we're off the grid. There is no health clinic. There's no health care whatsoever uh, They have never had anyone treated for malaria. So uh, it's a malaria endemic area that is completely uh, uh, uncontrolled and So if I had gotten sick there, I would have had to get out somewhere uh, To wow, to so help. wait, so you so you're saying the villagers there are, uh, get malaria and then there's really no treatment plan for them? There's no treatment plan. There's no one even to diagnose or 
tell them. So, the, tell so them. they have to like they they have to go to some sort of more urbanized place in order to get treatment. That's right. And uh, if you've had malaria, you know how strong you feel, which is you know you feel like a wet dishcloth. And uh, I described the the trip in uh, overland. And imagine trying to go out overland and you have malaria. Uh, so yeah. so uh, they don't. They go they go to bed basically and hope for the best. And uh, right. so some you know twenty percent of the uh, children either die from malaria or are permanently disabled by it before they reach the age of ten. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So th- that's devastating. At the same time, I don't know if this happens in Indonesia because I've never been there, but. In Africa, I always thought it was fascinating to see how casually Africans would treat malaria. And then I stopped and thought about it. I thought, well, we kind of do the same thing with influenza. So, like, if you, Jack, tell me, hey, Francis, I've got, I've got uh, the flu. I'm not all of a sudden going to panic and think you're going to die tomorrow. No. no I, I think, I, okay, well, that, you know, you'll, you'll deal with the flu. You'll get over it. But, and, and so, uh, so many Africans, they feel the same way about it. malaria. They're mm-hmm. kind of like... Like, oh, no big deal. So, uh, you know, I'll just take these pills and I'll be fine in, in a week or two. Or sometimes they don't even take the pills. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are different kinds of malaria. So the, in Indonesia, uh, they have primarily two of the four kinds of malaria. They have uh, falciparum malaria, which is what I got. And the high of the... That's the most... Uh, the, that's falciparum? Yeah, that's, that's the deadly one. And, uh, that's, yeah, that, and that's the most uh, common in Indonesia and especially in that's a bad combination yeah so uh, good news about it is it's very treatable if you have the correct drugs Uh, but the old uh, chloroquine doesn't work so you have to have the artemisinin compounds uh, uh, which are not readily available in local pharmacies so the only I remember reading I remember reading a statistic that 99% of the people who've died from malaria got the falciparum mm-hmm. strain yeah. versus all the other strains yeah. that exist. So falciparum is the one. I got that one. But I remember my first time I got malaria was in Ghana. I did not have falciparum. And I thought, you know what? It feels like the flu. It's not a big deal. It's not like I enjoy life. But it just went away. I actually took the pills and all that stuff. But the falciparum really just knocks you down. Yeah. And I imagine that's what you got as well, correct? Yeah, I, I was so weak. I, we, it was on, you were talking about, well, they wouldn't know at the local hospital. Well, that's what I thought. So it was on a Saturday or, yeah, Saturday morning. And uh, it was my second day into it. And I was at home with my wife. And she said, you know, you don't know how bad you look. You need to go to the emergency room. I said, eh, it's a country hospital. You know, it's probably a tropical disease. I mean, is going to be anybody on duty that would have a clue? But here's the amazing thing. Excuse <coughs> me. Um, the amazing thing is that uh, they had it diagnosed within uh, a couple of hours. Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, so what? They just took a blood sample and then they realized they ran some tests on it and they said, "Oh, you've got malaria. You're you're kind of screwed here." Yeah, and the the thing is, we have this reporting system in the United States. Of course, we used to have malaria in the U.S. I mean, it was before the war, before DDT. It was very common. Right. Um, sure. And Especially in the South. In the South, Florida, the Carolinas. But we even had it up here in Maine, you know, uh, back in the 1700s. Well, yeah. Um, so the way we got rid of it was uh, not only 
spraying the bejesus out of the south from aerial, you know, spray trucks and aerial spraying and everything else to kill all the mosquitoes. But we also had a reporting system uh, that, so any case of malaria in the United States must be reported up the chain of command back to the CDC. Um, and there's also a facility. So if you go, if you get malaria, you go to the hospital, they can send a, a blood slide, a digitized blood slide to the, to the malaria desk. And they have a malaria doctor there 24 hours a day who will get right back to you with a diagnosis and tell you how to treat it. So it can be the smallest, uh, uh, you know, country hospital, but they have backup support. And then, this, uh, once I got home from the hospital, I got a call from someone who told me she was the state uh, public health nurse. And I asked her, and she asked me a lot of questions about, was I alone? Did I take any prophylactic drugs? And I said, why are you asking all these questions? She says, oh, it's the law. Uh, I have to report all this to the CDC. So uh, that's the difference between the Western countries that have eliminated malaria and the emerging countries that are trying to get rid of, rid of malaria, it requires this kind of intensive management because, of course, there is no vaccine for malaria yet. They're working on it, but they don't have any now. Is it all just documentation, just being meticulous about these things, or do the countries that live in these tropical zones have a built-in disadvantage just because the weather is so favorable for mosquitoes and and it's so easy for mosquitoes to reproduce there and it's very hard to get their numbers down versus in other places they may not have such a prolific because they're above the tropical above the tropics yeah it's certainly a challenging natural environment um but uh it probably is equally so in florida or at least in south florida you know uh, Texas, probably mm-hmm. parts of Texas. So, um, it's, uh, I think it's very doable. Well, here's an example. Um, to, to, let's talk about Indonesia for a second. There's, uh, uh, about 2 million cases of malaria a year in Indonesia, but actually 70% of the population lives in communities which are malaria free. Now, what would those communities be? They would be primarily on Java and Bali, where there's a fairly uh, big middle class or where there are a lot of tourists. So uh, where there's money and motivation, you can eliminate malaria. Where there is no money Mm. and limited management skill, then malaria persists. It's a... Isn't there... But isn't there also a correlation between the amount of forest and urbanized, you know, versus urbanized. Imagine, I th- imagine it's much easier to get rid of malaria in Singapore, which is very urbanized because they don't have that many still pools of water versus, let's say, a jungle that has endless po- little pools of water for malaria to, I mean, for, for mosquitoes to reproduce them. Well, um, it's true that urban areas... Uh, are, mo- are much lower risk for malaria. That's true in Indonesia as well. So even if you take a fairly, even in Sumbawa. So most of the, uh, the lower infection rate areas in Sumbawa would be in the cities, towns along the main road. But I don't think that's because of the difference in standing water. I think that's the difference there is the access to prevention and treatment. Because... Um, Let's talk a little bit about how malaria actually 
is transmitted. Okay, it's transmitted by the mosquito, uh, but uh, it's from human to human. So that it requires a reservoir of the parasite in the human population for the mosquitoes to, uh, to transmit it to other people. This was actually the insight that uh, we had when we uh, decided to try to eliminate the malaria in Sili, Machi, and Panobu villages in this remote off-the-grid area. Because the more I started learning about malaria, the more I realized that the isolation was also potentially the, uh, the, the uh, condition that might allow us to actually be successful and eliminate malaria from these communities, which had suffered from, with malaria for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And um, I proposed to a couple of friends that we put together a little fund and go back there and try to eliminate malaria in three villages within three years for about the price of an automobile. Um, and we actually did it. Um, so um, the, the, the technique that we used was based on the following. If the malaria can only be transmitted if it's, if it's in the human population and the mosquitoes are, are biting someone who is sick and then transmits it to someone who is well, if we could uh, eliminate the uh, malaria in the human population by screening and treating everyone, 100% of the population, and keep them completely malaria-free for 30 days, mosquitoes in the wild only live for two or three weeks. So all the infected mosquitoes are going to die. And once you get past the 30-day mark, there is no more malaria in the human population. You've eliminated the reservoir of the parasite. And now you've rendered the Anopheles mosquito harmless unless somebody comes from outside and reintroduces it. But because of the isolation, there was much less frequency and much less risk of that happening. So that was the theory that we had. And I called um, uh, uh, Dr. Klaus Borg at the Sumba Foundation, who's a malaria specialist in Sumba, and I laid this out on him and said, what do you think? He says, yeah, it ought to work. It isn't usually done because it's so intensive, I mean, to actually find every case of malaria. I said, yeah, but these are s small villages. I mean, the largest one is Sealy, 500 people. The other two combined is another five. We're talking about, you know, 1,000 people. So if we put a little team of volunteers together, we trained a couple of nurses to uh, do malaria microscopy, built a little clinic with a little laboratory, um, we could probably, in a matter of months, actually screen 100% of the population. The World Health Organization, or the Global Fund, which I think is associated with the World Health Organization, but it's basically a health partnership, and the Gates Foundation is part of that, but not by any means all of it. They give the Indonesian government free meds. So the, the right medication would be available for free. We didn't have to buy that. All we had to do is have the capability, really, to diagnose and then uh, get the meds from the, from the government. So this, the tragedy was right over the mountain in the, in the uh, district hospital, there was malaria medication. And lots of times it didn't get used, and it went by the, you know, the sell-by date passed, they sent it back to Jakarta. Meanwhile, you got people dying on the other side of the mountain of malaria. It just seemed like a crazy situation. Uh, my first uh, thought when I started thinking about how lucky I was and how unlucky the people I had met in Sumbawa were, 
uh, my first thought was somebody should do something. So then I'm thinking, well, who? You know, I think, well, the Gates Foundation or the Indonesian government or, and so then I thought, well, I'm going to try to talk to them about that. But first, I have to understand enough about malaria to um, be able to tell them what I think they should do. You know, uh, and that's kind of how I got to the solution. Then I realized, now if we don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. I mean, they're if they if they were prepared to do it, they would have already done it. And so that's mm. uh, that's how we got into it. Um, and uh, it started out with just three people uh, using their own money. Um, at now we're um, uh, a 501c3 um, recognized by the IRS here. Uh, we've started a formal um, nonprofit in Indonesia, and we just uh, uh, um, got registered in Australia as well because <clears throat> there are quite a few Australian surfers that uh, know Sumbawa, so they would be uh, a good um, population to support the support the work. So, Jack, why when you went to Sumbawa, why didn't you take some sort of preventative medicine against malaria? It wasn't very bright of me, was it? <laughs> well, here was the thing. In there, as I said, there's no malaria in Bali. I've been going to Bali for years. I just didn't think about the fact that Sumbawa might be different, you know? This is the thing, out of sight, out of mind, you know? Right, but my, my question is also like when those villagers, when you tell them, hey, we're going to go sleep on the beach, if it's as deadly and as devastating as it should be, you would think that they wouldn't just talk about the wild boars, that they would also say, and by the way, there's, you know, malaria biting mosquitoes. Do they just not know the correlation between m malaria and mosquitoes yet? Or they just don't think it's a big deal? I think it's just, uh, it's just like the wild boar. It's just uh, one of the risks of life that they live with, you know, they, I mean, they have so many, um, uh, they have typhus. They have uh, malnutrition, you know. So uh, I don't think malaria necessarily rises uh, in their minds uh, to the top of the list of, uh, of the, you know, the things that they have to cope with in life. Is there education? In other words, a lot of times in Africa, for example, which is I know a lot better than just because I spent five years there goofing off, I would say that a lot of Africans don't even know there's lack of education in certain situations where their baby might die and they just might think an evil spirit came and ate, you know, like destroyed it. And it, they may not even correlate the fact that, you know, I would ask people like, how did your father die? He just got sick. I'm like, yeah, of course, but what? And they're like, I don't know. He just died. <laughs> so I don't know if the same thing goes on over there well, in it, Indonesia. Well, it does um, in these remote areas, especially uh, because, right. I mean, if there, there's no coroner, right? Someone dies, um, you bury them the next day. That's it. <laughs> so uh, there, there's no death certificate. There's, you know, someone hopefully writes it down in a book. But um, so they, they don't have any data as to uh, cause of death. Um, and whatever descriptions they might have would be very general because they have no way to, to really diagnose what the problem was. So, yeah, lots of times uh, they might, uh, you know, children might die of malaria. So the most vulnerable, right, it would be pregnant women, uh, unborn fetuses, uh, children under five, uh, the elderly, people with impaired immune systems for whatever reason, uh, people who are very anemic, maybe because of uh, poor nutrition, so these are the people who are most vulnerable. Do you have any idea, Jack, uh, how many uh, weeks, months, 
you can take these anti-malarial medicines, the stuff that prevents you from getting it uh, um, in the first place. Yeah, I, At what point does it become like not a good idea to keep taking it? Like if you're in Africa for five years like I was, I didn't even take it after a certain Yeah, I don't, I don't know about taking it as a prophylactic for years, um, but I have certainly taken it for 60 days. And I'm issued, right. issu- you know, the Malarone, which I, I think Malarone uh, or the... Uh, the right. generic version of Malarone, which is cheaper, um, is probably the safest, mm-hmm. most easy, uh, easily tolerated by the most people. I know that some Peace Corps workers in the United States Peace Corps, they some of them take it for two years during that's their two year stint. Yeah. They take it the whole two years. I don't I haven't had any real symptoms or adverse, you know, uh, consequences from taking it for 60 days. So um, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't. You know, of course, you want to talk to your your doctor because you might have some special condition or it might not mix with your meds or something like that but i mentioned that simply because some people might be listening to this and say well why don't those villagers just take malarone all the oh, time yeah. like every day just like a vitamin you know <laughs> just like take it every single day for like 30 years or for 80 years or however long you live yeah no, well it'd be uh, prohibitively expensive it would be unavailable but uh, what they have done in china as an elimination strategy um, and it's, I think, not yet endorsed by the World Health Organization, but it might come to that, is they'll go into a whole uh, population, let's say a, a city of 50,000 people, and they just, without diagnosing, they just treat everybody for malaria for 30 days uh, with the idea that you eliminate the malaria, again, the reservoir of malaria from the human population, render the mosquitoes harmless, and now you have effectively eliminated malaria. It will come back. That's very funny because that reminds me of when I was, I can't remember what country I was in in Africa. And these guys, whenever they feel like, oh, I got a little headache, you know, oh, my my back aches, (laughs) whatever, the toilet didn't flush right, whatever it is, they go ahead and they assume that malaria is the cause. And so they'll go off to the pharmacy and buy the malaria medicine, which only costs, let's say, a dollar. And then they just take it. And then I'm like, well, don't you want to go to a doctor and first find out, test your blood before you to, to verify whether the fact that your elbow hurts is the, is caused by malaria? They're like, no, because the test costs like five dollars and I can just buy the medicine for a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, and, so and I, that's probably cl- so I can that's st- probably chloroquine, don't you think? Um because uh, that would yeah, be a probably. lot cheaper. The newer compounds are pretty damn expensive. I mean, in this country, it, it's like six hundred bucks for a, a you know sixty day supply. So, right, but then it's compounded by the fact that probably at least half the cases they don't even have malaria. Oh yeah, it's just, well, just got a, uh, they just got a regular headache. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. Well, they didn't sleep well the previous night or something. From and you know it's. I don't know, it might, might be providing some prophylactic purpose, you know. Uh, one of the, this does raise an interesting point, though. Um, so one of the burdens uh, um, on us is that now that we have eliminated the malaria uh, in these villages, uh, should it come back, uh, the people who had developed some partial immunity are going to be hit a lot harder. So, uh, you know, if... This is one of the dangers. If you go in with a program like this and you uh, eliminate the malaria and keep it clean for, let's say, six months, a long enough period of time when the uh, partial uh, immunity has worn off, and then you leave and they don't have health care anymore and it gets reintroduced from people from outside, 
and the prop it will fairly quickly within about three years be back to where it was before. Uh, once it starts coming back, uh, you could have quite a few deaths uh, from people who otherwise you know had some partial immunity. So um, you have to continue to provide a basic level of primary health care and be ready to diagnose and treat malaria once, once you do this. Yeah. What do you think about this notion that some people have been tossing around, this whole idea of genetically engineering, I think it's males or females, I can't remember which one, to not be able to reproduce and therefore, as a result, kill off the mosquito population by uh, making them infertile? I suppose female Anopheles mosquitoes are the favorite food of something, but... Uh, uh, yeah, I, there's always that risk, isn't there? The unintended consequences. What seems like um, an obvious universal good, uh, get rid of Anopheles mosquitoes, you know, might have a downside that we're not smart enough to understand. So that's the problem with it. Um, much better, I think, to go after the parasite rather than to go after the mosquito. But um, on the other hand, um, if it's the only solution... Uh, it wouldn't be a bad thing. I mean, that, that is what we did, but we used DDT, you know, and we just, it, which was very indiscriminate. So if it was something very targeted only to the Anopheles mosquito, well, it's, they would be doing, uh, you know, a, a better control job than we did in this country and, the, and than the Europeans did because we have better tools. But. It just reminds me of that guy, Thomas Austin, the landowner in Victoria. He came out in 1859. He went with 24 wild rabbits from England, and then he released them into Australia. Yeah. And those 24 wild rabbits multiplied into the millions. Yeah. And, you, you know, again, just unintended consequence. And then they just, just devastated the entire ecosystem yeah, there. That's the problem. Um, uh, eliminating the protozoa that is the... Plasmodium parasite, which all of the malarias are plasmodiums, a human malaria. I wouldn't feel bad about eliminating that little critter. That one, I think we could probably safely eliminate. So let's do that. Let's let's go after that protozoa. But destroying the actual malaria, uh, sorry, the actual mosquito species completely, wiping it off the face of the earth, probably would have some devastating, unforeseen consequences. Although I just wonder, has anybody actually written about? what those consequences could be like has anybody done a what if analysis i i don't think i think they just know they're just smart enough based on examples like you have cited to know that this there probably is some but we probably won't know what they are until they happen i'm not sure you'd be able right. to you know uh to fully research it in advance and, and know but now in september of 2019 you expanded your malaria program to include the village of mata which has about 1,500 residents, 350 homes, yeah. and you treated 900 beds. Now, do you find that what's the most bang for your buck? Is it the bed nets, like so many people say, or is it something else? Well, you need a combination. Um, so the first thing we always do, um, we go into a new community like Mata, which we're just, just doing now, actually. Um, we have the bed nets actually at my house in Bali, and we'll be, uh, I'm going over on the 10th of October, and we're going to in, install them in homes. This is a village of 350 homes, so yeah, 1,500 people. So um, the first step, it's an easy way to knock down the infection rate by a third. All right, so 900 nets will take care of 1,500 people. Um, and um, so we get that done first, and then we 
go through the methodical process of screening for malaria to eliminate the um, the malaria from the human population. So we find all the cases, we treat everybody, we keep them malaria-free with the hope that uh, when we get done with this process, within a two-year period, we'll basically have eliminated for the first time ever malaria from that village. So, But we can, in a matter of a month from when we start, we can get everybody sleeping under insecticide-treated bed nets. And it's kind of an alternative to spraying because these, are, these uh, nets now are uh, impregnated with a very high-tech, safe uh, mosquito repellent. So it's a much safer way to provide some protection as compared to spraying the interior of the home with DDT, which is the alternative and still used, actually, not in the U.S., but it is still used in the third world or the developing world. What, and do you find there's an education challenge there as well with regard to bed nets? For example, I remember when I was in Benin, a lot of people had bed nets that were donated by some NGOs. And then they still didn't use them because it was still too hot. When you're underneath a bed net, if for those who've never experienced it, it really cuts out the ventilation. Even if you have a fan in the room pointed right at your face, you won't feel nearly as much of the fan's ventilation as because the because the net is so tightly is so small because of course it's got to prevent a mosquito from getting in that it's almost like almost I'm exaggerating but like a wall I mean so therefore you get hot and so you, what you would see is I would see these Africans just sleeping out on the outside so they could feel the breeze and they would just be out there white in the open because it's so hot and humid it's more comfortable than being inside underneath the bed net yeah that is a problem um, and of course that's very climate specific so uh, we're in a coastal climate uh, in Sumbawa it does cool down a bit at night, uh, so it's not as much of a problem as, say, interior Asia or Africa, I'm sure. Um, but we still have people who object. Um, but uh, we, we do a couple of things. One is we buy only the uh, like queen-size uh, bed nets, and then several people sleep together. Like Often you know, a couple of brothers or three sisters will sleep under one net. Just being a little bit bigger gives you more air. That helps. And the newer nets are a little bit better. So I sleep under a net every night when I'm down there. And I open the windows um, so there's no screens or anything. I just open up the shutters and the breezes come through. And we don't have electricity, so I don't have any fan. And I'm usually, you know, pretty comfortable. So, but uh, yeah, I can I can certainly imagine. Let's say in uh, in Laos uh, or Cambodia, uh, your interior, you're not by the sea, and if you don't get any breezes, it doesn't really cool down much at night, and yeah, it might be unpleasant sleeping under a net. So, but it's pretty effective in Sumbawa. Uh, most people will, will accept okay. it. Okay. Uh, what do you think of the other treatments that people have proposed for malaria and some of the more advanced, you know, either vaccination, for example, as a potential solution, which would be, seems like the ultimate solution. Um, do you, there's some, somebody even told me yesterday, in fact, they said, but they've discovered already a vaccine. And I was like, well, I don't know how true that is. I've heard that thing (laughs) announced many times. There's, they're testing a vaccine. I I think in Africa, it's only 40% effective but it's the best they've got. Um, so they're testing children in a high-risk community in Africa. Um, and I think there's several several thousand people that are, it's being tested now to see what the efficacy is. Um, but um, that's not a cure, you know. 
Um, but hopefully that, I mean, that's the ultimate. Apparently it's very, very difficult scientifically. It's very challenging. Uh, I mean, the, the protozoa has so many different uh, stages that it goes through and it apparently it's just devilish to uh, develop a vaccine for it or they would have done so a long time ago. Uh, they have better diagnostic techniques, or let's say newer da- diagnostic teeth, but not better. Actually, the gold standard for diagnosis is still, um, you know, microscopy, and um, you make a blood slide, you put it under a microscope, and you examine it, and you've been trained to identify the malaria parasite. Um, that's still considered the gold standard, and Dr. Klaus runs a malaria school that uh, in a month can teach a nurse to, to do that. And that's how we do it. I think we may be the only people, the only medical facility in Sumbawa that does use a microscope to diagnose malaria. The alternative are these newer uh, antigen-based little uh, cassettes. So it's kind of like a pregnancy test. You put a drop of blood in there and you you put a a little enzyme on it and it changes color. But uh, they can be unreliable and they don't give you as much information so you don't always know what kind of malaria it is or what the percent infection rate is so you know there's but that's because it's quick and easy and it doesn't require much training that's pretty much what people are using in Sumbawa I know at the regional hospital and so forth Uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to keep them on track um, with the uh, using the microscope it's just more work and takes a little more time but you know you can you can turn it around in a few hours, um, so it's not that long. But you get a better. What about process. your plans regarding expanding Health Access Mbawa, your your nonprofit? One strategy is to expand within Indonesia, which it sounds like you've already done with the village of Mata, but also going to other countries in the world. How do you balance that decision? Because you obviously have limited resources, limited time, and and funds to. You know, spread this uh, this effort. There's a national goal in Indonesia, and it's part of a, a global goal uh, out of the UN uh, to uh, eliminate malaria from most countries by 2030. Very ambitious goal. Indonesia has signed on for that goal. Sumbawa has signed on for that goal. At the current pace, there's no way they're going to make it. When you consider that there are all of these little communities, let's say 20% of the population of Sumbawa is living in these little isolated communities where uh, there's essentially no health care. So the government's not even going there. So, And if 80% of the malaria is in these communities, which they don't serve, then uh, if they keep doing what they're doing, um, they're not going to be able to eliminate malaria from Sumbawa. So it appears to us that this 80-20 rule this might be uh, the opportunity for us to do a pilot project of scaling up where we focus on these types of communities. Uh, first, develop a model to identify those communities in Sumbawa which represent the 80% of the uh, malaria uh, that are remote, and then have a mobile team that we could send into uh, the villages based on some prioritization. Um, do use our malaria elimination model with the take the census, put, hang the bed nets, uh, then screen the population and keep the malaria free for 30 days and eliminate the malaria, move on to the next one. As long as the government would come in behind us and then provide primary health care, that would work. And so I'm writing a proposal now 
um, to uh, try to fund this so that we can take that model after we do MATA uh, and, and in coordination with the Sumbawa Health Service become that sort of uh, strike force uh, for going into the remote areas and eliminating malaria. It's very exciting. Yeah, that would be a, a big game changer. And how do you fund this? You obviously look for donations. Uh, what's the, the the primary way of raising money? It's primarily uh, individual uh, donations. We do have a, a website, uh, healthaccesssumbawa.org, and there is a donate tab on that, or they, there's an address where they can mail a check to us. It is uh, uh, tax deductible because we are a registered charity in the United States. Um, we are starting to get smaller uh, foundations supporting us. So we've had uh, foundation support, you know, in the ten, fifteen thousand dollar type range, but we don't have any <coughs> salaries in the United States. Uh, the only salaries we have, or overheads really, are in Sumbawa in the project area. So we're a real shoestring budget operation, and we do an enormous amount with fifty thousand dollars, seventy-five thousand. Yeah, that's the. Generally speaking, the the way that things work is that when United Way, $50,000 will pay for, I don't know what, <laughs> somebody's hotel. <laughs> As I said to somebody, <laughs> uh, most universities couldn't study the problem for $75,000. We can eliminate malaria <laughs> while they're still studying, you know, so uh, it's extremely cost effective. Um, but, um you know, there's a lot of competition for. We haven't gone out. I mean, frankly, we've been busy. So I, sp- I split my time um, between fundraising and managing the the project over there. And so we're you know we're very lean staffed, um, but uh, you know it's working. Now to, to 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 scale it up to take that next step. Now you're talking about uh, uh, more money, obviously. But we're still only talking about maybe a hundred thousand dollars a year. I'm not talking about millions of dollars needed. Now, if you, if somebody was listening to this and say, you know, I'd love to do something like Jack Kennedy and do a nonprofit, uh, what would you advise them before they leap into the nonprofit land? Because it's not easy. You know, it, it does take a lot of time. I, I still work. Um, so that I do this as, a, as, you know, a side project, but uh, it's a full-time job. One of the things that a lot of people fail to do is to put good financial controls in place. You got to... You know, to have someone to do uh, some accounting. You, uh, if you're going to be sending money overseas, you got to find somebody you can trust uh, to handle the money over there, and you got to require good accounting. And we've come up with a clever little system which um, uh, could never have been done before the internet. But now, with all of the, uh, uh, you know, mo- everybody's got a mobile phone, and if you get an internet connection, uh, this works great. So. Uh, you find someone in this remote village off the grid, keep the books. Every time they buy anything, they write it down in their ledger. Use the phone to take pictures of the ledger once a month. Go up on the mountain or to a neighboring village where they have a signal. Send it to me. I enter it into QuickBooks. So we have every penny accounted for, um, and I can do it. I can control it here from, from Maine. So... Um, that works really well. And if anybody is interested in doing something like this or wants to, you know, is already doing it and wants to, to uh, share their experience with me, give me some tips or uh, I could, might have some ideas they could use. You know, networking is so important. Talk to other people who are doing it um, and um, 
don't try to you know re- reinvent the wheel. You got to find someone who's more experienced than you that has the specialized expertise, and uh, yeah, put all that in place before you start. But it is so rewarding. I mean, I, th- this is probably the happiest uh, period of my life. I'm now 73. I'm working harder than I ever have, but I have such a feeling of uh, purpose and uh, so much satisfaction. And um, and you know, Francis, going to Africa, so that uh, you know, hanging out with the kids, so they may have no money, but they're all smiles and and uh, uh, you know, being being around younger people uh, as much as as we we are working doing this kind of work is just. It's like the fountain of youth, really. Uh, it's just just fantastic. So I, I highly recommend it. What do you say about the pe- to the people who kind of have a snooty attitude? I see it all over the internet. Every time I post a video, people say about the white saver complex. In other words, the guy. You know, how, how how do you deal with that? Well, I take it to heart. I mean, I think you do have to be careful of that. Uh, I grew up in a you know in a State Department family and. Um, um, dad was a specialist in tropical medicine, and this is back in the 60s and 70s, and there was, um, there was quite a lot of that, you know. Uh, but the other thing about U.S. foreign aid is it tends to follow uh, war zones, right? So quite a bit of our aid is actually military aid, and even that which is not military aid, a lot of it is reinforcing foreign policy goals, which I suppose, uh, you know, uh, is what... Uh, voters would expect, but it means that a lot of the money is in these war-torn areas, and we're, in some cases, we're occupiers. So a lot of the uh, experience that I saw in Southeast Asia when I was a kid, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, uh, uh, it was a very imbalanced relationship, and I think that uh, uh, a lot of the um, private NGOs have uh, taken a look at that and said, that um, there's a better way to do it. And so I very much uh, stand back. So uh, everything is run by Indonesians. The only salaries we have in the organization are Indonesians. Uh, So we send them for training. We talk about goals. We talk about programs. But everything is implemented by local people in the community. Um, We're not um, making that mistake, but, you know, we're, we're... it's difficult to to be self-critical, so I'm sure we step over the line from time to time because sometimes you're impatient and you just, you know, uh, you, you can see a better way to do it. Uh, but the fact that I think it's actually an advantage, if I was living there all the time, I would have a very hard time uh, resisting stepping in and running the show. But the fact is I don't, uh, I'm, I'm still resident of Maine. I go over twice a year. I spend a couple of months, three months now uh, in the project area, but I'm not there all the time. And they have to run the whole show when I'm not there. So uh, they are definitely uh, acquiring skills they didn't have, uh, management skills, medical skills, um, uh, running of an institution, doing the bookkeeping. They're doing everything. So we're definitely transferring a lot of knowledge and uh, and, uh, process that I, uh, I hope will uh, outlive me. Speaking about outliving you, Jack, is there any point when you would say, okay, we've done it, we've succeeded, we can shut down operations, 
we can declare success and let's all close down the operation of non, this nonprofit health access Sumbawa and let's all go home because we've accomplished our task. So originally you're supposed to close in three years because the, it was a project. It wasn't a, you know, going to be an NGO. We were just going to put some money in a pot and uh, we we're going to eliminate malaria from three villages in three years for the price of a car call it good and go home. And Klaus said, no, 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 you can't do that. <laughs> you know, says now you got to provide primary health care because it'll just come back. Uh, so that's what kept us in the game. Um, but my strategy is to phase us out over time. But uh, who is the likely successor? Basically, it's the Department of Health. Okay. So we're doing work that in a more developed country, the Department of Health would do. So, uh, we work very closely with the Department of Health in Sumbawa. We make our facility available. So if they have a visiting nurse, for example, to do inoculations, they now use our clinic for that. And eventually, we'll turn that over to them. Um, and we're, as we scale up now, we're not anticipating building clinics all over Sumbawa. We don't want to do that. We want to do it in partnership with the health department because even though Boy, getting approvals is so difficult. I mean, it moves so slowly. It would be so much easier to just say, huh, we're going to have five health access to bio clinics and just go do it, you know. Uh, but then what do you, you know, then it, you're basically competing with the local health service. And what are you going to leave behind? Who's going to run it if you leave? We'd love to work ourselves out of a job. None of us are getting paid, you see. <laughs> so uh, if we could work ourselves out of, out of a job, uh, that would be, that would be the ultimate goal. Do you? Th what year do you envision that happening, where you can actually get your get your freedom back, and so you can go to back to Bali and lie on a beach like a proper retired person? Because of the twenty thirty goal, and it's going to take all of that to eliminate from uh, malaria from Sumbawa. If we, as Health Access Sumbawa, um, commit to staying with it until twenty thirty and helping to assure that that actually happens. I may not be able to carry it to 2030, but the organization, I think, has, has a purpose uh, until there's no, no malaria left in Sumbawa. Excellent. Well, that's great. Jack, I'm so happy to have uh, talked with you about this because I have been promoting Health Access Sumbawa for almost a year now on my podcast. And I'm just happy that we finally got to connect and share some of the things that you guys have been doing. And I think it's fantastic. And I'm, I'm wishing you the best. And uh, thank you for sharing all your goals and plans. If people want to learn more, it's healthaccesssumbawa.org, correct? Yes, healthaccesssumbawa.org is, uh, is the place to reach us. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel technology and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. Would you like to win $1,000 in travel credits? Visit tourradar.com slash wanderlearn to enter this amazing contest. Tour Radar is a Wanderlearn sponsor, and we want you to travel beyond your comfort zone. So visit tourradar.com slash wanderlearn to enter this $1,000 contest. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to FTAPON. Now here's one more reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and want to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash FTAPON. That's where you can pick up some sweet rewards for as little as $1 a month. 
Now, here's five quick favors I ask from you. Number one, subscribe to the Wander Learn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it. And five, sign up for my newsletter at ftapon.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.